Well, we are going to be in the book of Acts again this morning. In the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 9, where we are going to continue our series, the book of Acts, part 2, which focuses on the persecution of the early church. And we spent the first few weeks of this series seeing how they have responded to persecution, to see what it teaches us about being the church today. Today, we're going to see how God specifically responds to this persecution. I'm going to start here in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way is what early Christians used to be called. Before they were called Christians, they were called the way. Perhaps a nod to Jesus' claim that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could come to the Father but through him. They were called the way. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, which is the modern-day capital of Syria, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, which is still in Damascus today. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he, behold, is praying. And as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road and by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Even though these first 19 verses are all about Saul and his conversion to Christianity, I really think today this passage as we study it and we we speak about it today is really a lot more focused on God. By the way, during this sermon, I may refer to Saul as Saul. I also may refer to Saul as anybody? Paul. Paul, right. Because Saul and Paul are the same person. So when I talk about in the past, I've talked about Paul who wrote like 20% of the New Testament. This is the same guy. It was not uncommon for people uh, in ancient times to have multiple names. 
Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. Unlike some of us have been taught, Saul did not have some name change at conversion. Like he went from Saul to Paul, like one song sings. He continued with both names, as you will see in Acts. You just see the Paul name a lot more because he writes a lot to the Gentiles, which are the non-Jewish people. But with that said, I said this is a lot more about God than it is about Saul. So the questions I want to ask today is, what can we learn about God from this passage? And I think the first thing that we learn is the reminder that salvation starts with God. It starts with God. God came to Saul just as today he comes to us. Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this makes sense when you think about it. In Ephesians, Paul, he writes that without Christ, we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sin. In other words, it is God who comes to you He is the one who gives you the ability to wake up. He is the one who has the ability to give you life everlasting. For you are dead in your sins, and no dead man has brought himself back to life. Now, sometimes he comes in a dramatic fashion, like we see here with Saul. Even today, this probably happens. I've I've read stories, I've not met anybody, but I read stories about people in the Middle East, about men having dreams about Jesus, and then coming to faith. There's no reason these dramatic shows of God's power have ceased. There's nothing in scripture that says it. However, I think for most of us, he comes in a much more ordinary way. Because I think when he comes in an extraordinary way, there's special purpose to it. But for most of us, it's a case where we respond to the Holy Spirit who stirs the truth of God's word in our hearts. Jesus talks about this in the book of John. He says, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when you're sitting there and you're hearing the gospel and you are starting to realize, man, I'm a sinner. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. And this is a beautiful, beautiful truth that God is a God who wants to save. I mean, think about it. If it is true that God created everything, if it is true that God said, this is the way you are to live, if it is true that we say, all right, when we sin, we are separated from God. It's literally an act of treason against God because we're ignoring God and we're teaching other people to ignore God by the way that we live. If all of the things are true and we are worthy of judgment, then he didn't have to come and save us, right? Justice has been answered. We sinned. Romans Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, right? All these things are true, then it is a miracle and an act of God's grace and love that he says, I want to come and save you. I want to save you. I could leave you, but I'm choosing to come and save you. When I talk to people, they get so wrapped up, God's a God of judgment. Okay, you could say he's totally a God of judgment if he left us to be judged, but he doesn't. He says, yeah, you're going to be judged, but I want to save you. And I'm going to pay the price for you. God states this very powerful in the book of Titus. He says in Titus chapter 3, 
Starting in verse three, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you probably, if I were to ask, you remember, you remember the moment that he came knocking on your door and your eyes were opened. And you're like, oh, thank God, God saved me. I'm praying for some of you, that moment will be today, that your eyes will be opened to who God was, who God is, and what he wants to do in your life. Someone uh, once asked me on this, they said, why didn't God come to Paul, Saul sooner? Like, because if he had, how many less people would have been persecuted? That was a fair question. I think, first of all, we don't know if God did not already come to Saul. Actually, no, you know what, we do. He had come to Saul through the Old Testament prophets and scriptures. He'd come to Saul through the life of Jesus. He'd come to Saul through the testimony of his followers. So it's not like Saul had been kept from the gospel. It was just that Saul had been blinded from the truth. We read in 2 Corinthians that Satan works to blind unbelievers from truth. If you sit here today watching and are in the house and you're like, I don't believe in this Jesus. Is it just possible that you don't believe in Jesus? Not because he's not real, but is it possible that if there is an enemy who is opposed to God, that he would work to keep you from seeing the truth? How many times do we try to hide the truth from other people because we want them to do what we want? Is it that big of a stretch to think there's an evil out there that is trying to hide who God is from our eyes? But it is a good question. Like, if Jesus had stopped Saul, maybe he would have done less damage. And I, you know, why did God wait? I, I, obviously, we know that it didn't matter that Saul got converted in terms of persecution because the persecution was bigger than Saul. He was just one step. They would have found somebody else because the persecution kept on after Saul got converted. He ended up in jail where he wrote a couple of his letters. I also think it's important to remember as we talked a couple weeks ago that sometimes when it comes to persecution, the things that we think are the worst for the gospel are really what's best for the gospel. When Saul was persecuting the church, it forced the church, remember we talked about to spread out to Samaria and Judea, to other places that, that impacted and started to carry out the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like, I don't know if that would have happened without the persecution, because we often as humanity, we like our comfort zones. God doesn't see persecution the same way that we do. If it's true that eternity lasts forever, and yet our lives on earth are like, a blink of an eye compared to eternity. 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, if you're lucky or not, you know, not lucky, you know, compared to your health. It's a blink of the eye. And so God is willing for his people to suffer in the short term so that people can find him for all of eternity. I mean, this is what he says. He's like, look, go pray for Saul because he's going to suffer for my name. I wonder if Ananias included that in his prayer. 
Lord, thank you that Saul is going to suffer for your name. Saul will be like, what? He's willing to let you suffer. Don't be surprised when it comes. In his own divine wisdom, he chooses when and how to act. And we either have to trust that we know more than him or that he knows more than us. So in a blink of an eye, when he does act in this divine wisdom, Saul's life is changed forever. Now I thought a good question to ask was what is it exactly that changed Saul's life in a flash of eye? flash of the eye. And this is a good question to ask because some of you who are still struggling to put your faith in Jesus, the reason that his life was changed, it is the same reason that's holding you back for putting your faith in Jesus Christ as opposed to where you put your faith now. In verse five, Acts 9 verse five, Paul said, and it says, and he said, speaking of Paul, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. This is what changed him. Saul came face to face with God. He came face to face with Jesus. He did not come face to face with the God that he had been worshiping. He came face to face with the one true God. For any of us, any of us to find salvation, this is literally the first step. Coming face to face to God and accepting the fact that he is who he is, he is not who we just hope or want him to be. Pastor Tim Keller, he talked about this once before he passed. He said, I often hear people say something like, I believe in a God who just wants us to love everyone and accept everyone no matter what. Some of you may believe this too. If you do, or it's a question you struggle with, let me ask you this question. Why do you believe that God is like that? That he accepts everyone, loves everyone as, he, as they are, whatever they choose to do. Why do you believe that God is like that versus believing God is like something else? I think the only answer to that question is you believe God is like that because you want to believe God is like that. You want God to be that way. And what you have done, whether you realize it or not, is you have created a God, you you have designed a God. You haven't accepted God, you've created one. You've created a God who is exactly the way that you want him to be, that fits your views perfectly, that brings you the most comfort, that makes your life the easiest, that gives you the most control. The problem with this, and this is is next level deep right here, this kind of God will not and cannot ever change you. This God can never change the inadequacy that you see when you look in the mirror. This God can never help you work through your failures, your guilt, and your shame. This kind of God cannot give you a different perspective with your fear and your anxiety. 
This God cannot help you root out your bitterness and your anger. This God cannot help you grow. Why? Because he thinks exactly like you do. He is a mirror of your heart. For a long period of time, Saul did not know the God of the Bible. In all the words, throughout the whole Old Testament, there are so many prophets who spoke about the Messiah, and yet God, Saul filtered them out. He filtered them all out. But everything changed when he came face to face with God. You may have believed in God your entire life, but you only get converted. You only find Christ when you start to realize that you are dealing with a God who is not the way that you want him to be. He is the way that he is, period. And he will not change for you. You can only find Christ. You can only be changed when you begin to sense and understand that you're dealing with a God who is not the way that you want him to be. I can't say it enough. There are things you read about him in his word that, that scare you. There's things that you read in his word that you find utterly and completely disturbing. There's some things that you have, that you read, that you have trouble accepting. Until you have a God like that, you don't have a real God. In fact, if you don't have a God that you disagree with, how do you know that he's really God and not just a product of your own imagination? You only know that you have a God is when you can see things that he says that you don't agree with or you struggle with it and you say, you know what, I'm going to follow you anyway. Think about it. If you're in a relationship with a person who never says anything against you, they never contradict you, they, they never offend you, they never talk back to you, you don't have a real relationship with that person. In every real, authentic relationship, there's going to be tension, right? There's going to be growth, there's going to be struggle. Unless you have a God who tells you things that you do not want to be true. And this is the important part. This is even next level deeper. Unless you have a God who tells you things that you don't want to be true, you're never going to believe the things that are too good to be true. Why? Because once again, he reflects your heart and what you think is possible and what you think is right. You are going to struggle to ever know that he loves you. You're going to struggle to ever know that he forgives you. You're going to struggle with the fact that he's going to adopt you as a son or daughter, uh, that he can speak to you through his Holy Spirit, that one day that you'll be resurrected. You, you, you will struggle. Unless God, unless you have a God that tells you things that you don't want to be true, you're never going to be changed by the things that seem too good to be true. 
So where do you get that kind of God? You have to go to the Bible to find him. And here's how it works. Let me, let me, let me make it personal for a second. Over the years, as you say, man, I believe in the God of the Bible. I trust God of the Bible. You're going to open up the Bible, and, and you're going to read things where you don't like it. I, I remember this. I, I still do this, where there are things I don't like, I don't get, that confuse me, that I, I, I have trouble just with. And yet I have to choose, okay, is my faith in the God of the Bible, or is my faith in me and what I can see? I've been living long enough to know putting my faith in myself is not wise. You live long enough, you'll learn the same. So what I'll do is say, God, I trust you with this. I'm gonna walk with you in this. And so then as I trust him, it might take a while, months, years, but eventually what will happen is like, okay, I get this now, that's why. That's why he says this, or that's why he did this. And then that converts me. It changes me. It changes my perspective. I start to see things through his perspective. That's what our heart needs. Our heart doesn't need a God who just looks like what we want or what we think our heart needs. Our our heart needs a God that's different than we are, that will challenge us, that will cause us to think differently. That's what changes you. And in this moment, that's what changed Paul. Like he just had this incredible moment with God and his life was changed and transformed. Like it's amazing. He would go from being like this prosecutor of Christians and he's now going to become a preacher. Like he goes from being this legalistic Pharisee and now he's like be a great proclaimer of God's grace. What a transformation. Like anytime you ever think God cannot use you, if you have not rounded up multiple Christians, throw them in prison and seen them executed, my bet is you probably have a good chance of God transforming you. Even if you have done those things, which I hope not, right? God showed you he can still change your world. Paul testifies to this grace, okay? First Timothy chapter one, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, because, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Verse 16, he says, but I have received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ, my, my Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And the church said, amen. I mean, is it not amazing? God's power of transformation. It's like just what he did in his life. And I was thinking as I was writing this this week, and I was thinking over the almost seven years that I've been here, the transformational work I've seen him do in many of your lives. 
And, and it's, it was fun because people's faces were, were, were coming up in my head and conversations I've had and changes I've seen made and just the joy that it was brought to me. And Stan, yesterday at the men's breakfast, he shared his testimony. You've seen Stan sometimes. Up here he sings. And I still remember the first time he came and sat down with me. And he said, I really think you need to know what kind of people you have sitting in your pews. I'm like, oh boy. And he goes to share the struggles and the sin of his life and his doubts. And to the man that I see in him today, who still has struggles, he'll be the first to tell you. But the peace and, and, and the change in perspective that God has brought him as he has sought Christ in the cross, it's awesome. It is awesome. And I, then there's some of you I have met recently and some of you, you've shared your pains and your struggles and I look at you like I look at Stan when he first came here. God's ability to work in your life, but you, you can't see it yet. Maybe you can. But for those you can't, it's coming. As you look to him, as you cry out, I need you more. His power is gonna say, do the same work in your life. Life, and there's not more, many more beautiful things I get to see as a pastor than watching God bring peace and joy into someone's life as they look to him. I tell you right now, if you ever look in the mirror as a Christian and you just feel condemnation, you feel like you won't be any good, that you can't be used for God. That's a lie of the enemy. That's a lie of the enemy. Paul's proof, Saul is proof that there is no past that is too big for God's grace. None. You ain't that powerful. You ain't that important to override God. His grace is greater than your past. It's just a matter of whether you choose to accept it and behold it or not. Saul says this later in, in Corinthians. He says in 3.18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree, one degree to another. In other words, becoming like Christ. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice what he says, this comes from the Lord. It is the Lord who's doing the work. It is the Lord who gets the glory. What's Paul doing in all of these verses? And, and I'll tell you right, I, I ask this question because of all the things that I hope comes from this message, it's this like right here, right here. What he's doing right now in these verses is he's gazing, he is pondering, He's meditating on the beautiful grace of God. That's what he's doing. And, like, and this is what I want. When you walk out of here this day, if you're a sit here a Christian, and you go out into your life, I pray that this week, like that would be changed. You would start seeing your life through the lenses, through the glasses of the grace of God. That would color how you see yourselves and how you see those around you. I mean, before... before the grace of God, he was a Pharisee filled with pride. 
And in, 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 in true Pharisee fashion, he's like, well, of course God accepts me because I'm better. I do all the things that God wants me to do. All of the things he told me to do and the things that I added on for good measure. But now Paul's different. If you read all of his letters, he can't talk worse about himself. He's like, he's like almost filled with wonder. He's like, I can't believe God saved me. You know, there was a pastor's wife, I don't remember her name, but once she said, one of the signs that God has truly awakened your heart is that your life as a Christian is almost a joke to you. And I mean in a joyful way, where you are like constantly laughing, going, I can't believe God saved me. Like, I can't believe it. I can't believe he uses me. I can't believe it. Can't believe, I can't believe he would choose me. I think this all the time as a pastor. I'm like, I can't believe that God would use me as a pastor. I can't. When, when I make a difference in somebody's life, I just sit there and go, I don't, I don't get it, God. Because I've known me my whole life. You ain't known me my whole life. Some of you know me long enough, you probably wonder how God can use me too. But for the rest of you, I'm like, God, how, how, how do you, how? John Newton, he once wrote when he was an old man, he goes, man, he goes, by this, he didn't say man, I'm throwing that in there because he was a different time. They didn't really say that back then. He says, by this point, I thought I'd be different. He said, I, I thought I would always love to pray. I'd never suffer with jealousy. I, I wouldn't be controlled by money. My love for God would never grow cold. So as he's reflecting back, does he get defeated by this? Is he crushed? He's like, no, 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 he doesn't. Because he knows that his failures, they don't end there, right? He goes on to say this. He goes, one of the reasons that God allows us to continue to struggle all our life with indwelling sin is he wants us to grow ever more amazed at his grace. You ever wonder, sometimes you pray for things and God doesn't take them away. You ever wonder that he keeps them there for a good reason? That maybe they're uncomfortable for you they're there for the health of your soul. I know humanity, I know me. If God gave me everything what I wanted, right when I wanted it, I'd stop asking him for thanks because I'd be independent, I'd be on my own. It is only in my own fears and my failures that I constantly long and depend on him. Sometimes our struggles and our sins, not an excuse to sin, but sometimes the things we struggle with, they're the very things that keep us connected to God. They're the very things that God uses in us to teach others. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that the ultimate test of our spirituality is, not a, the, uh, uh, is our amazement at the grace of God. The amazement at the grace of God. Too many of us, we measure our spirituality by how often I pray, how many times I read my Bible, how often I share Christ, all good things. But our true spirituality comes in the ground and the foundation of God's amazing grace. God always wants us looking outside of ourselves and looking to him, not in a mirror to ourselves. In fact, I would say this, there's beauty in it. Paul Washer, great preacher, he says, the more I grow as a Christian, the more I understand the depravity of my heart, the sin that's in me, the selfishness that's in me, the failures to be committed to God and to follow through in me. 
but he says, the more that I grow, the more in, that de- in those moments of despair, I cling to the cross and the work of Christ. And I find joy and I find peace and amazement and comfort in his love. He said, which once again shows my depravity more and more, which once again drives me back to the cross. And this process goes over and over and over until I have nothing in my life to cling to but the cross. He said, that's the power of the sanctification in the life of the believer. And so I pray today, I pray today simply, we would cling to the cross. We would understand God's transformational power because of his grace. That would give us hope for tomorrow and what he's calling us to do. It would bring us comfort and joy in in our struggles and in our sin. Not an excuse to sin, don't get me wrong. Remember, Paul thought he was the worst person in the world. He marveled at God's grace and he took the gospel to parts of the earth that have never been taken to before. So God's grace is a motivational factor, not a license for sin. But as we get so enamored in God's grace that it would draw us closer to him, And it would impassion us to bring his grace to the world that desperately needs it. That is my hope and my prayer. In Jesus' name.